0: Good evening, everyone, or good afternoon, depending which part of the world you're in. Um, uh, Welcome to the uh, March edition of the BTOG Educational uh, Monthly Webinars. My name is Alan Kirk, I'm a thoracic surgeon from Glasgow, and my co-chair, who's curating your questions at the end of the the presentation, is Ihab Bishi from Birmingham. On behalf of the BTOG Steering Committee and BTOG itself, we've put together three expert clinical speakers, going to talk about their particular uh, interest and innovative approaches to the treatment of early stage lung cancer. With the advent of lung cancer screening and early diagnosis, this is an area that we hope will expand over the coming years. Our first speaker is Rob Stevenson and I look forward to hearing what he has to say. Rob.
1: Sorry, Alan. I, I, first talk is, is, is Malcolm Will.
2: Yeah, so uh, my name is Malcolm Will. I'm a thoracic surgeon uh, in Edinburgh. The talk is entitled Anatomic Segmentectomy as an Alternative to Lobectomy for Early Stage Lung Cancer. I have no disclosures. Um, segmentectomy um, really has shown growing interest uh, recently. If you look at PubMed citations searching for the keyword uh, lung cancer and segmentectomy, Um, The number of citations has hugely increased. Um, Last year, about 240. Um, But you've got to remember this operation is not new. Um, The first sort of case series for lung cancer described in the early 70s, um, but in fact the operation had been performed anatomically via thoracotomy um, from the late 1950s. Um, My now-retired colleague Bill Walker uh, described a vat in 1995 and robotics appeared in early 2000, and, and Juleski uh, described a case series of segmentectomy in 2011. Um, in Edinburgh, um, you know, between 95 and 2008, uh, we really didn't do many segmentectomies as a result of the Ginsburg study, um, but from 2008 onwards, um, this has increased. Um, this is mostly Bill Walker's work, and in 2017, about 10% of our lung cancer resections were performed as anatomic VATS segmentectomy, Um, In my own practice, uh, I do about 100 minimally invasive lung operations a year, and and it's between 12 to 18 cases a year, Um, and about 60% of those cases are for non-small cell lung cancer, the remainder being from metastases or benign lesions. Um, Doug West was kind to provide... Uh, this data from the UK society, he's one of the thoracic audit leads. Um, and we can now see in the UK that 57% of lung cancer resections perform minimally invasive and there's an increasing number of minimally invasive segmentectomies and also robotics. And it's interesting that robotics actually has a higher percentage of segmentectomies um, than in VATs are open. Uh, and this may be a suggestion that the surgeons that carry out this procedure are more enthusiastic about it, but also technically it could be easier. Uh, What do the guidelines say to help us? Um, Well, the NICE guidelines in 2019 uh, really emphasize that lobectomy is the gold standard treatment for fit patients. Um, And for those that are not fit, uh, and that's really for debate, um, then they could be offered radical radiotherapy or SABRE or sublobar resection. Um, the European guidelines at least give some reference to segmentectomy. Um, it's favoured over a wedge resection. Uh, it may be better applied for pure GGOS or adenocarcinoma in situ with minimal invasion. Um, but also, it is not suggesting solid tumours over two centimetres. Um, VATS certainly is recommended. And I think with the Violet study, which should be published um, hopefully soon, um, we'll definitely be using more VATS techniques or minimally invasive approaches. Uh, The American College of Chest Physicians guidance is is fairly similar to the European. So I'll I'll just flick through that, Um, but just emphasize that really tumours should have sufficient margins at the time of operation. Um, I I think it's been hard to get away from this publication, 1995, um, but we do have to remember uh, we're in an era now where staging via PET and CT and EBUS um, is is far better than those days. But we, we can't forget that low bar resection um, was better than sublober in 1995, and we've got to remember that 33% of the cases in that series were wedge excisions, but there was very good anatomic staging of the nodes, and particularly using frozen section to show that these patients were actually all tumors under three centimeters. Um, I think in reality the decision for segmentectomy is quite complex, and when you go to international meetings, um, people describe it as being compromised or forced, Um, for patients that are not fit or where they refuse, or if there's some uncertainty because of previous um, surgeries for other cancers, or if there's bilateral lesions um, or metachronous lesions in patients that have had previous radical treatments such as surgery. Um, But but I think there's a a real blur now between the two different areas, Um, intentional really being favored for patients that have favorable uh, radiology and possibly even histology. Um, why do we do segmentectomy? Well, definitely, it preserves lung function. Uh, and this nice study by a Japanese group, really the pioneers of segmentectomy showed using CT and perfusion um, that removing uh, less than two segments had minimal impact on lung function at six months being a reduction of 3%. And the more segments we took, uh, the bigger the impact was. Um, but there may be some lack of difference between a lobectomy and an upper lobe trisegmentectomy. So uh, there's some things to bear in mind uh, when you incorporate this in your practice. Um, A group from Strasbourg um, have shown us um, quite convincingly um, using analysis of 12 different studies, few were randomized, few included high-risk patients with poor PFTs, um, but definitely the difference between the outcomes at 2 months and 12 months in terms of mean loss of FE1 was was significant um, and also the benefit of VATS. Um, Looking at trends in practice, uh, this recent publication from the Uh, European Society of Thoracic Surgeons has really shown that in the recent year of 2013-18 to um, that the differences between the lobectomy and the segmentectomy group of patients uh, may be getting smaller. Uh, There's no significant difference now in the patients in terms of breathlessness or ASA score in terms of assessment of fitness for surgery, Um, but you can see that segmentectomy is still applied in patients that have poorer PFTs, uh, although certainly not at levels which should prevent or preclude lobectomy. Um, we, we know wedge resections are per operation. Um, this paper from the Boston Group um, showed that mean tumor size of 30 millimeters, they could only achieve a margin of about eight millimeters. Um, and we know when we do suboptimal surgery, our enthusiasm about lymph node dissections reduced and only 20% of patients had lymph nodes sampled. Um, again, this showed that segment types in the early era was performed quite badly, around 30% of patients having no lymph node assessment. And also these patients being much older, hence the poor outcome in comparison to lobectomy. Uh, we should bear in mind uh, that the change in invasive potential of tumors as they go from ground glass lesions to s- subsolid to solid lesions. Uh, and also the SUV um, may be a marker for patients that have uh, lymph node metastases detected at the time of surgery. Um, I think the Japanese groups have emphasized that identification of a sentinel node can be challenging at segmentectomy. And using radioisotope techniques, um, you can identify nodes in 67% of patients. Um, but anterior lesions um, tend to uh, have central nodes in a posterior location. Um, And I think it's important to bear that in mind when you consider um, segmentectomy and the tumor location. Um, We we know the Japanese groups can perform this technique extremely well um, with low um, necessities for a completion lobectomy due to poor margins um, or upstaging because of central node involvement. Um, But you've got to remember these patients all had frozen section analysis of margins and all nodes from all regions. Um, Some of the literature suggests some cautions about which locations might result in poor outcomes, and it seems that superior segment of the lower lobe um, can be associated with uh, higher metastases to the mediastinum, um, particularly superiorly, Um, and actually a more recent paper, which I've not referenced, um, suggests the right side may be worse than the left. We've got large retrospective analyses of the SEER database showing that in tumors between one and two centimeters that lobectomy and segmentectomy seem to have similar outcomes in terms of cancer-free survival. Um, But above above two centimeters, certainly lobectomy is favored. And below one, um, the approach could be either wedge, segmentectomy or lobectomy. Um, I think if you go through the literature and in preparation for this talk, there is so many meta-analyses now of sublobar resection versus lobectomy, and I find it quite hard to to pick out. Um, But there are a few key points, uh, and namely if you select patients for GGOs, peripheral tumors, or partial lesions where the the consolidation of the tumor ratio is less than 0.5, and the outcome in terms of survival or um, cancer recurrence is similar between lobectomy and segmentectomy. Um, In this paper in 2017 for stage one patients, there's no difference in overall survival, um, but we need to emphasize that only um, three patients, three patients, sorry, uh, three papers had um, randomization. Um, another paper um, suggesting that there's a trend towards improved outcomes for solid or part solid lesions, but not significant statistically. Um, and again, no difference in overall over survival between a VAT lobectomy or a VAT segmentectomy approach and stage one disease. Um, Again, univariate analysis of overall survival seems to favor lobectomy, but when you do multivariate analysis, um, the outcomes are similar. uh, And this suggests that the groups are really not well-matched. And again, another one just to show that actually the only safe group would be the under two centimeters um, in terms of overall survival. Um, I think we're going to need to wait for the outcome of these randomized studies. Um, The American study um, highlights the difficulty of performing these studies. It's taken much longer. Uh, 40% of patients were precluded from randomization, Um, but it does emphasize if tissue diagnosis wasn't achieved up front, that 16% of resected lesions were benign. Um, There is a reasonable number of patients that appear to be understaged on recruitment. Um, and actually the intraoperative nodal staging rate is actually lower than expected and lower than historical studies being 6.4%. Um, and this is not dissimilar to the Violet's results, which are unpublished. Um, I think the early outcomes data show that um, VATS is used in these uh, studies, but unfortunately now we have 58% of patients undergoing wedge resection in the sub-Logar group. This is even worse than the Ginsburg paper. So I think we're going to be limited in our potential um, oncological outcomes at the end of all this. Um, I think we can see some favorable um, comparative outcomes between uh, lobectomy and sublobar resection in terms of 30-day mortality um, and no difference in perioperative morbidity. Um, and then when we look at the Japanese study, um, which again has finished recruitment in 2014, um, we've got similar um, complication rates between segmentectomy and lobectomy. Um, and a higher instance of air leaks, um, which is thought to be related to patients that were smokers or undergoing complex lobectomy, uh, so, sorry, segmentectomy. So I think going ahead and looking at you know, the sort of patients that will enter our multidisciplinary team meetings, um, you know, if lung cancer screening is rolled out, particularly in the UK, uh, we're gonna see a huge shift of patients into this early stage disease. And I suppose along with that, Um, we will need to consider earlier intervention and I I do feel that segmentectomy will become uh, more applicable with time. Um, The Japanese groups continue to give us um, really quite good understanding of how to perform complex segmentectomy. Um, This paper looked at uh, CT reconstruction of the venous anatomy Mm -hmm. in the right upper lobe um, and also the bronchial anatomy um, and they were able to determine based on the segment that wants to be resected, how the approach surgically could be achieved, whether that was anterior, interlobar, or posterior. Um, and again, they, they've shown us some further data using uh, virtual segmentectomy, um, where you can give interbronchial administration of uh, endosign in green. In um, this example here, there was two, two lesions in the right upper lobe, um, which metastases, um, but they are able to simulate margins. Um, and actually the concordance of the surgical margin versus the virtual margin was good. Um, and in 85% of patients, um, we were able to visualize a segmental border. So I think um, going into the future and particularly in the UK for standard practice, um, we, we need to develop gold standard segment um, I think this will be a minimally invasive approach. I think robotics is gonna help this. Um, and we have to be certain that we divide all the segmental structures, including the vein. Um, Identification, and the division of the intersegmental plane, is a topic in its own right, and I, I give you reference to uh, a good paper from Dominic Gosso in Paris, who is a VAT segmentectomy expert. Um, we need to achieve good margins. We need to ensure systematic and radical dissection of the lymph nodes, uh, including sufficient sampling of um, all areas and sufficient number of nodes retrieved. Um, and I think we will need to make um, interoperative frozen section the goal standard of practice um, for. know, diagnosing the lesion as well as the nose in different regions and margins. Um, I think in the UK we'll need to train our surgeons now um, into both simple and complex segmentectomy. I've found it very easy to train trainees in Edinburgh um, in left upper lobes trisegmentectomy or lingualectomy, um, segment six or the basilar segments of the lower lobe or the right upper posterior segment. Um, But I think individual segments of the right upper or the basal segments um, are quite challenging and I think it's an area we need to improve. So I think uh, going ahead, I've no doubt that the decision-making may be improved by artificial intelligence techniques. Um, I I think in reality, our MDT select patients based on their fitness, uh, based on the radiological degree of possible invasiveness, um, you know, these surgical strategies undetermined, minimally invasively um, we're trying to pick out um, the winners. Um, But I think in the future, in order to achieve the best outcome for our patients, um, I think these sort of AI models and machine learning are probably gonna be successful. Um, So I think personally that lobectomy has to remain the gold standard while we wait the results of these ongoing trials, Um, but certainly segmentectomy has a role in a very selective group of patients and may in fact be best applied by fairly experienced fat surgeons um, familiar with the techniques. Um, So that's the end of my talk and I'm going to hand on to Rob Stevenson.
1: Thank you, uh, Malcolm. If anyone's got any questions, if you'd just like to um, ask them on the column on the right and we can um, go through them at the end. Um, So I'm going to talk on um, Sabre for early stage lung cancer, uh, the evidence. Um, So this is the the guidelines that all um, clinicians and centres use um, who practice stereotactic radiotherapy in the UK. Um, So, as you all know, um, the time-honoured gold standard for the treatment of early lung cancer stage one is surgical resection. Um, It's associated with good five-year survival rates between 60 and 70%. The other alternative traditionally was conventional radiotherapy. with poorer survival rates of only ten to thirty percent, and we generally would quote twenty percent of the patients, um, and five-year oh, local oh. control which varied between thirteen and seventy percent. So conventional fractionated radiotherapy is uh, in, in uh, inferior uh, to surgical resection. Now, obviously, we all know that. A lot of patients can't receive uh, surgical resection of their lung cancer um, due to comorbidities. Uh, and there's this, a wide group of patients who are medically inoperable or uh, decline surgery. So, one of these uh, groups would be patients who have uh, severe COPD. And is there a benefit to, to treating these patients? In actual fact, much to my surprise, um, in, uh, patients on long-term oxygen therapy with severe COPD have a median overall survival of 33 months, which is 20 months over and above the median survival for untreated stage 1 lung cancer. So there is a, a potential for a significant benefit from a, a curative therapy. Obviously, these patients can't have surgery. We're also limited with uh, poor FEV1 and TLCO for conventional fractionated radiotherapy. Um, so other alternatives are looked into and one of those is SABRE. So SABRE is stereotactic ablative radiotherapy. Um, recent uh, trial um, looking at um, SABRE versus conventional fraction radiotherapy showed there was a significant progression-free survival benefit and overall survival benefit uh, from SABRE over and above conventional radiotherapy. And that's obviously with patients with adequate lung function. Um, Several groups across the world started looking at Sabre, uh, Well, almost, uh, what, 15 years ago. Um, there's groups in America, um, Holland, and Japan. Um, Carrie in 2005, uh, did a phase one dose escalation study. They started 24 grain in three fractions and then rose two grade per fraction um, beyond that. They found that it was only one failure, um, um, local failure at doses, of uh, 48 gray in three fractions, but there were nine below that. Um, and they found that a dose limiting toxicity was reached at 72 gray. So they concluded that 22 gray in three separate fractions was safe and that's alternate days, and they proceeded to a phase two trial. <laughs> they had the same inclusion criteria and there was no restriction on tumor position. This is important. Uh, they continued with the 66 grain three fractions. They had good two-year local control at 95% uh, and that holds true for lots of uh, subsequent studies and there was a roughly 50% overall survival. It was a very well tolerated treat- treatment generally uh, with only grade one toxicities in the majority of patients, however eight patients had grade three and four toxicity and unfortunately six patients had grade five toxicity and died. And this was because they were treated see, treated central tumours. Um, and therefore the trial concluded it was unsafe to give sabre to central lesions and needed long-term follow-up. And that has shaped practice uh, and the majority, well all commissioned uh, stereotactic radiotherapy in the UK um, is non-central tumours unless it's part of a trial. On the back of those studies the no-fly zone was developed um, and basically it's two centimetres away from the central airways and we can only treat peripheral um, tumours outside of the no-fly zone. The exception to this is with, within um, Commission three Evaluation Programme um, for oligometastatic disease where you can treat the, uh, within the lung parenchyma uh, but not um, if it's touching the central structures. Um, also, we can treat within the no fly zone if it's part of a clinical trial. So, there's a summary of some of the early trials, um, all of which show good um, two year overall survival, good tolerability, and obviously, I've highlighted the Timman study, which treated central tumours and it demonstrated the grade five uh, toxicities in those patients. So, this is our standard saber dose fractionation. Uh, if the lesions are well away from the chest wall and the low fly zone, we tend to give 54 grain three fractions. If there's contact with the chest wall or the low no fly zone, it's a more conservative 55 grain five fractions. And there's an even more conservative dose, it's just 60 grain eight fractions where the constraints can't be met of uh, the above two dose fractionations. And, and this is taken from the UK Sabre Consortium guidelines. So the evidence for SABRE has accumulated over the last 15 years. It was reviewed by the Leeds Group, uh, Morietal, in 2017, and they evaluated the outcomes of uh, 4,500 patients. They found excellent overall, uh, sorry, local control rates. At five years, it's nearly 90% uh, local control rate, and the survival rates of 60% at three years and 40% at four to five years. There's a wide confidence interval there. So there is you know, a significant amount of evidence for treating patients with stereotactic radiotherapy. As you know, um, most of our patients are are in the older population Uh, we've got an aging population with increased incidence of lung cancer. As mentioned before, there's multiple comorbidities uh, which preclude surgical resection and conventional radiotherapy. Studies have looked at the efficacy and toxicity of Sabre in the elderly population, uh, looking at uh, the under 70s, 70 to, 90, 70 to 80s and over 80s, and they found there was no difference in the two-year local recurrence rates, regional recurrence, distant metastases, or core specific survival. However, as you'd expect, patients over 80 had a lower overall survival at two years. Um, treatment was well tolerated, and there was no difference observed in grade three pneumonitis rates or mortality at um, day 90. Several groups have also looked at um, their uh, recurrence uh, rates and where patients relapse Um, The VU Center in Amsterdam show a local local recurrence uh, rate of 10%, which holds true in all the previous studies, and that's similar to the MD Anderson study in America. Regional relapse was around 12% and distance around 20%, and we tend to see that patients who are treated with disabled with a larger tumour tend to have a, a higher instance of regional and distant recurrence. Um, As many of you know, we are able to treat patients without SABER. Um, It's written in uh, national, international guidance. Um, We can treat patients with SABER if we feel that there's a significant risk to the patient by um, trying to obtain a biopsy, and so we can go on PET scan alone or serial growth on CT scans. But these patients must be discussed at an MDT. So getting down to the evidence versus surgery, um, it's a burning question. It's been going on for you know, a number of years. It's a number of studies that have tried to look at this, but unfortunately, several studies um, had to close early due to poor accru- accrual. Um, there was an ad hoc pooled analysis of the patients that were randomised um, and showed that the three-year overall survival was 95% with saver and 79% with surgery. The recurrence-free survival was 86% versus 80%. They concluded there was clinical equipoise between surgery and SABER, uh, but obviously the, the small numbers uh, in the trial uh, and both trials failed uh, to complete recruitment. So I think you've got to um, look at these results with caution. Um, again, the Leeds Group um, did a feasibility study, uh, which was published last year. They intended to uh, randomise patients who are high risk for surgery between SABER and surgery. Um, they considered 318 patients, two of 205 which were ineligible, and of 106 eligible patients, only 24 randomised. And the key theme for non-participation from patients was preference, and that is a big issue. And therefore, their conclusion was that a phase three randomised trial was not feasible within the NHS. And so that still leads, to, you know, the question: Is surgery better than saber? One thing that we have discussions at RMDTs quite frequently is interstitial lung disease and SABRE. Uh, we, we can be quite reluctant to treat patients with in, uh, underlying lung fibrosis. And there is growing evidence that patients with underlying lung fibrosis at baseline are increased risk of toxicity. As I've mentioned previously, SABRE is generally very well tolerated. The majority of patients have grade grade one or two, or two toxicities. However, if you've got underlying interstitial lung disease, uh, there was a significant increased risk of radiation pneumonitis and actually the 21% risk of death in the trial by uh, BAHEG in 2016. And so if a patient is referred with the underlying fibrosis, there is a frank discussion about the risks, which do include long-term oxygen therapy and death. Um, and so obviously a lot of patients are put off by that and a lot of clinicians are put off by uh, giving uh, stereotactic radiotherapy for patients with lung fibrosis. So, as I mentioned previously, we can treat uh, patients with lung metastases. That's part of the... Um, initially, it was called a commissioning three evaluation. Uh, recently, the NHS has rolled out stereotactic radiotherapy for patients with metacronous extracranial oligometastatic disease. And that's basically up to three sites of uh, extracranial Mets uh, after a disease-free interval of six months, by like control of the primary for six months. Um, as part of this, uh, which is now routine commissioning, we can treat um, lung metastases, bone metastases, adrenal metastases, liver metastases uh, and lymph node metastases. Sabre is also being rolled out across the UK, um, in the, for example in the West Midlands, QE where I work has been the only center for delivering Sabre for for many years. Uh, Recently Coventry down the road has started doing uh, peripheral lung um, tumors. Part of the network, we are rolling out Sabre to other centers throughout the network uh, and they're getting support from mentor sites. Uh, And the aim will be that uh, all centers within the UK will be able to offer Sabre of, of some description, not all sites will be uh, able to uh, deliver Sabre to, for all indications, uh, but I think this is a you know a good um, outcome for patients, um, because obviously a lot of patients don't want to travel, find it difficult to travel distances to have treatment, uh, so the rollout of Sabre across the UK is an exciting um, opportunity. So Concluding slide really is, is, Sabre for early stage lung cancer, the real evidence. That, well, There's no perspective of randomized controlled trials looking at surgery versus Sabre. There is good evidence for superiority of Sabre versus conventional radiotherapy. It's safe and effective for patients. There's no limit on lung function. There has to be caution used in patients with ILD. And it's widely accepted as a, an alternative for medically inoperable patients who or, or those who refuse surgery. And there are significant benefits for patients with oligometastatic disease.
0: Thank you to all the previous speakers. Uh, really excellent um, talks. We know that we've given you 15 minutes, um, which is tight, but hopefully um, enough to give our attendees a taste of, um, of, discuss- of some discussion points. Uh, so can I encourage you all to put in your questions for the panel? And can I have the panel turn on their cameras? Uh, in preparation for these um, uh, questions. If I could start off with um, Malcolm, in terms of um, you very nicely illustrated about the evidence, what what would you say the level of evidence to support the use of segmentectomy is at the moment in an evidence-based era of medicine?
2: Well, yeah, it's if you look at the meta-analyses, I mean, it's sort of 50% of them have I think it's when they looked at some of the papers are sort of level 2a so um you know we've got one good rct um which is historical and and really individual prospective studies um one or two with randomization um the, the rest really large retrospective analyses of data so i think that's the real challenge of this area and i think as some of the speakers have pointed out i mean the outcomes are only as good as the patients that you put in and whether that's patient fitness or oncological stage. Um, and, and I think I've, I've found it quite hard to tease out um, how you pick the winners, particularly if you're going to apply um, so-called intentional segmentectomy to a patient with good lung function. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think those boundaries are, are, are really getting more blurred. And w- when you go to meetings, um, I think it's harder to tease out why people are doing it. Um, but I think if you are going to do it, there's, there's now there's you have to do it to a pretty high standard. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure it has been done to high standard mm. across the board. Um, and, I, and I think my feeling is that you've got a lot of experts, uh, particularly the Japanese group, who are clearly very good technical mm. surgeons um, and who can do this operation to a level that many of us can't. Um, so, so I think as a, a group of surgeons, you have to work out really how you fit into that and, and what you can do, which is the best outcome for the patient.
0: And the and a, and a question for me that's always been uh, sort of very difficult is, Do you think that we're moving away, obviously, from uh, big thoracotomies to robotic to vats? So we're not feeling these lesions. So we've lost that tactile sort of uh, component of the operation. Do you think that's not important nowadays when you know your anatomy very well for a segment?
2: I think, um, like I touched on with the virtual segmentectomy and some of these sort of computer-aided analyses, I think that's going to help us um, get the margins. But I think as Kelvin touched with his techniques that uh, navigational bronchoscopy and, and localization uh, using dye, for example, to get boundaries, uh, whether it's methylene blue or ICG, but also fiducials um, or hooks placed um, percutaneously. So, so I think we're going to need to incorporate your know, skills that the respiratory teams have, that surgeons like Kelvin have um, into the practice. So it, it might become much more a multi-modality practice in the operating room. Um, the so-called hybrid theatre that that Calvin's been lucky to sort of get going with.
0: Excellent. We've got a question from Hazim Falou to Malcolm. Question for Malcolm, with the limitations of frozen section in defining invasiveness of the tumour, how can we rely on it deciding on segment or lobe?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think there's no doubt you really need to look at the preoperative diagnosis as much as possible. Uh, and again, we're, we're getting these very small biopsies, and it's becoming much harder to d- discriminate different subtypes of adenocarcinoma. So um, if you look at the literature, that there's certainly um, sort of some subtypes like micropapillary um, carcinomas that do badly with sublobar resections. So um, I think if you can get a good biopsy up front, um, I think that's the best way. Um, if your pathologists are doing frozen sections, Um, Then I I think certainly looking at some of the data coming out of China and Asia, um, their their pathologists seem to get more confidence with frozen section specimens, um, but certainly some of the subtypes are difficult to tease out, um, whether one's more invasive than the other. Um, So so I think you you need to be cautious, Uh, and I think one of the things I struggle with is the sampling of the lymph nodes. Um, I mean some areas are just being sampled at the segmental level, some at station 10, Um, some throughout the mediastinum and I still don't know if this is micrometastases and you do a segment and you go adjuvant treatment is that patient going to be different to the one with that's had a lobectomy Um, but you know that's not really been tested in any sort of comparison Um, but obviously we we don't want to leave things behind so if, if there's disease somewhere else we tend to think just doing a completion of lobectomy is the right thing but that hasn't been tested in any sort of formal study.
0: Okay thank you very much. Rob, you often talk in the MDT about the, the no-fly zone. If you can just elaborate a bit more about that and, and, and why is it so important that the, this so-called no-fly zone exists? What, what's the data from? Well, the, the data is from the early trials where they would treat
1: um, lesions Anywhere within the thorax, essentially. So um, the Timman group did some uh, treated central tumours. So those within the no fly, touching the mediastinal structure. So, you know, uh, aorta, you know, esophagus or whatever. So you're getting a significant dose to those, and patients died. And so there's actually now definitions of, of central, supercentral, and ultracentral, and, and they're being looked at in terms of um, treatments as part of clinical trials. So the, the no-fly zone was really derived after Timmerman's trials and say where the safe area to treat was uh, to, because we know that patients treated outside of the no-fly zone save very well tolerated with any grade one or two toxicities in this group of you know, patients who have significant comorbidities. So it's a well-tolerated treatment out of the no-fly zone. There, I think the rationale for treating within the no-fly zone but not no, not lesions within the, the, mediast- the, um, the mediastinum for oligometastatic diseases. obviously they've already got metastatic disease uh, they're not curative, curable and therefore you will accept the risk of treating within the no-fly zone but we know you're not going to get a grade 5 toxicity from treating within the lung parenchyma in the no-fly zone. Mm-hmm. There's also trials like the Pacific 4 trial who are looking at Sable um, in combination with the Valumab. And again, within that trial, we're allowed to treat within the no-fly zone. Uh, but we shouldn't really be doing it outside of a clinical trial because of the historical yep. evidence of, of toxicity.
0: And what, at what size level can you tell a patient that you can cure them? Well... Uh, we treat up to five centimetres. Um, I
1: generally always say to my patients, unfortunately, the bigger the lesion, the more likely you are to relapse reasonably or, or distally. Um, I had to whiz through six, my case uh, in my in my presentation there. Uh, but it was a good example. She had, she had a five centimetre tumour in the right lower lobe, had sabre. It shrank significantly down to about a centimetre, mainly scar tissue, but then relapsed at six months in the lymph node. So I think as... as um, Calvin spoke about earlier on you know the bigger tumors the more likely you are to relapse because of micrometastatic disease and we can't stage a lot of these patients because of their comorbidities so they can't have uh, you know any bus or bronchoscopy
0: mm. okay um, yeah. and what about the use of saber for ggos is that is that something that's done we're seeing more and more ggos or even if they have a solid element can you use saber for that if they're not um, we
1: yeah, we, uh, there's no real evidence to treat for G- GGOs, uh, it's not commissioned, uh, obviously if it's got a solid element um, and it's progressing, then we can treat without tissue, um, if it's got a herder score of 70%, we would uh, treat, uh, but not for pure ground glass, we wouldn't give, say there's no evidence.
0: Okay, Um, but a question from Jeanette Rowlandson, a good friend of BTOG, uh, in an IO targeted therapies era, how can patients better understand long-term surgical outcomes versus perceived less invasive treatments with side effects? So, how can patients better understand long-term, longer-term surgical out- outcomes versus perceived less invasive treatments with side effects? I think, Kelvin, you're sitting nicely to answer that.
3: You're, you're muted, Kelvin. Easy. Ah, apologies. Um, I um, I don't know. I'm a surgeon, and so my uh, my default position is always to talk about surgery. And I would um, I, I I will say that the local control and the cure rate is highest with surgery. Now, the majority the majority of patients would go for surgery, and a lot of patients who are medically inoperable would also want to have surgery, and they perceive that is their their best chance. If they don't then I will talk about um, about the alternatives in specifically about the uh, IO um, I'm not familiar with specifically uh, with, with with the results of IO on that apart from the Dora trial but that is for stage 1 B so the tumors have to be larger than three centimeters a lot of my patients tumors are less than three centimeters and they have to have an EGFR mutation um, and so on um, so um, I don't I'm not uh, I'm not very familiar with using IO specifically as opposed to the EGFR um, uh, 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 targeted therapy. Um, so I don't really talk about them in the MDT. If they want to talk about IO, then the oncologist will see.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Um, just staying with you, Kelvin, you, you've, you've, you've illustrated very nicely about the, the um, you don't get so many pneumothoraces and reactive effusions as you, if you go percutaneously. But have you had a heart sort of sink moment when you've had lots of blood coming down the airway? And and, and what are the tricks to, uh, I mean, surely bleeding has yeah. to be? Yeah,
3: so it's interesting uh, because um, uh, microwave ablation uh, is a, thermal, a form of thermal ablation. So it's effectively putting a very big diathermic probe inside. And when you do a biopsies and you remove the probe, you see blood, you see some blood bleeding. Whereas after an ablation, you remove it, it's pristinely dry. So um, uh, the, that, that is not a, a main concern. I, you know, I've got blood coming back before when I'm doing biopsy and it coming out of the channel, but usually this is very, it's, it's, it's self-limiting. You, 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 you put your extended, you put your, your, your insert back in and leave it for five minutes, almost always stops. Okay.
0: And is there any particular zone? Have you got a no-fly zone for, for this
3: technique? Um, there, uh, There's not really a defined uh, uh, no-fly zone, but there are areas that are, well, there are two areas. One are the ones that are very central. So I was referred to ablate someone with a tumour right behind the right main bronchus. That's too central. I need to make, I'll, I'll make a hole in the right main bronchus. So that doesn't work. And, and similarly, if you're too central next to the main PA, you don't really want to ablate that. Um, and the other... The other, the, the area that's difficult is where you have difficulty navigating to, and there are two areas that are particularly difficult to navigate to, and that's right on the medial side, because you imagine your bronchoscope have to go out and then turn back on itself immediately, and that might be solved by robotic bronchoscopy, where they have an articulated tip and they can basically point anywhere back to yourself.
0: That's, that's, that's brilliant. And do you, do you stage the patients in, in any uh, uh, special way? I mean, you, I presume you do the usual PET. And
3: uh, yeah, if, so they're staged exactly as I would for a surgical patient. And if there are hot nodes and they refer for ablation, then i almost certainly do an EBUS um, uh, uh, and be the stynoscopy if they're fit for surgery, but most of them are not. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we're coming up to uh, the time. So I'd like to wrap up by asking each of you, how you'd like your two centimeter peripheral PET positive tumor to be dealt with starting with Kelvin what would you
3: have (laughs) the gold standard treatment resection (laughs) (laughs) rob same saber no surgery
0: and I want my lymph node sampled and you want your lymph node sampling in Malcolm segment
2: yeah uh, well, no, hopefully my talk inferred that Levesque is still uh, the gold standard.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. It's uh, 6.30. Thank you uh, so much to uh, Malcolm, Rob and Kelvin. Three excellent talks. We put you guys really under pressure. We we appreciate that 15 minutes, uh, but I think I'm hoping that you've given the attendees a flavor of, of the exciting things out there and for them to build on on your talks and to, uh, uh, and to read a bit more. And I think... Uh, uh, certainly, Malcolm uh, has agreed to share slides, uh, which I think were excellent. Uh, Rich, can we have the last slide um, just to sh- just to show you the upcoming webinar in May, uh, Rich? So the the next BTOG um, educational event. I, Rich is leaving me hanging there. Last slide. <laughs> there we go. So the next BTOG webinar is a mesothelioma update on Monday, the 17th of May. So please, uh, if you've enjoyed this one, uh, please attend uh, uh, on the 17th of May. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all then. Okay, have a good evening.